COVID emergency orders in today. Yeah, I, I think I can't really believe that it's been three years. It just feels like, I don't know, time kind of stopped in a weird way. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The changes that came out of the COVID emergency and the safest ways to move forward. We still have to do the same things that we've been doing for the last three years, uh, now at a smaller scale, but who knows how the situation could change where we need to ramp up again. The Padres, a $350 million contract extension and what it all means for their World Series quest, plus a conversation with hip-hop artist and craft brewer Kimit Aki. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. After three years, California and San Diego County's COVID-19 emergency orders are ending today. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman has a look at what's next. It's been more than three years since San Diego County officials declared a state of emergency for COVID-19. It was announced in mid-February of 2020 out of an abundance of caution. Soon after, the governor's stay-at-home order was issued along with California's state of emergency. That resulted in 74 executive orders and nearly 600 additional provisions that state officials say helped save thousands of lives. There are a lot of regulations that were suspended uh, as a result of the pandemic to allow us to move faster. Scripps Health CEO Chris Van Gorder says hospitals have been able to keep up with demand thanks to those orders. They allowed for higher patient-to-staff ratios and the ability to quickly add extra bed space. We could have had a real uh, healthcare catastrophe had the you know government agencies not worked hand-in-hand with, uh, with the healthcare providers. Last week on Thursday, Scripps had 80 COVID patients admitted across the county. That's far from daily counts of more than 300 during surges. Van Gorder says it's time to end the state and local emergencies. That fear and, you know, verge of panic that we saw three years ago uh, is is really gone. Our, our, Our physicians, our nurses know how to take care of these patients. California's Department of Public Health says of the nearly 600 provisions issued, just 27 are in place until March. Masking is still required in healthcare settings and long-term care facilities. State health officials say those orders are not tied to the pandemic emergency ending 
and Van Gorder is waiting for more details. He's also looking to see if state officials will continue their vaccination requirement for healthcare workers. There's probably a lot of people, including uh, hospital employees, that are, are curious about that. And we'll wait and see what the state the state may decide to waive that when they waive you know, the healthcare emergency, or they may extend it. The state and county have been winding down their pandemic responses. Long gone are the mass drive-up vaccination and testing sites. San Diego County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten has been leading the region's pandemic response. We still have to do the same things that we've been doing for the last three years, uh, now at a smaller scale, but who knows how the situation could change where we need to ramp up again. Wooten says plans are in place should they need to scale up again, but she says the pandemic is manageable. The cases are not as low as I would like to see them. They are between uh, mid to 200. So that is evidence that the virus is still circulating in the community and we can't uh, rest on our laurels and, oh, we are through this. The pandemic is not over. The county is continuing to monitor COVID through San Diegan's wastewater, and recently the amount of virus has been going up. Things are overall pretty darn good in San Diego County. The, the only issue that doesn't go in the right direction is the wastewater surveillance shows some uptick, but hospitalizations are way down. Dr. Eric Topol from the Scripps Research Translational Institute isn't forecasting any substantive changes with the state and local pandemic emergencies going away. The virus has been producing new variants, but while things are relatively quiet, he would like to see investments in better vaccines. We're not prepared, and we could be working on this, but uh, we're not getting serious enough. Topol and other health officials say COVID certainly isn't going away and could look similar to the flu with vaccinations recommended every year. Topol says if we continue to have minor COVID waves, the virus could be considered endemic, but that's too early to say for sure. It all depends on whether this virus can find a new path to get to hosts and hurt us, whether it's run its course. The federal COVID emergency is set to end in early May. For all Californians, vaccines, testing, and treatments will still be available with no out-of-pocket costs for an additional six months. That story from KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt is with us now to talk more about the end of the COVID emergency declaration. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jade. Great to be here. Also with me is Rebecca Fielding Miller, who we have heard from on this program many times throughout the last three years of the COVID-19 pandemic. She is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego, in the Herbert Wertheim School of Public Health and the Division of Infectious Disease and Global Public Health. Her research includes examining the structural drivers of COVID-19. Welcome back, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you both with us. All right, Matt, I'm going to start with you. Uh, San Diego is ending a three-year emergency COVID declaration. It's another milestone in this pandemic, and I, I wanted to give you a chance to reflect on your time covering the virus and where we are now. Well, first, I, I can't really believe it's been three years. I mean, it seems like that time has flown by. Um, you know, looking back to those early days, you know, if you remember, we had you know, evacuees from Wuhan that came here, stayed at MCAS Miramar. So we kind of had an early taste of uh, coronavirus before uh, we started seeing some of our own cases here. 
And, you know, in those early days, there was a lot of unknowns, it seemed like, and health officials were taking a, a lot of precautions. I mean, there was the universal mask mandate. Uh, we saw a lot of restrictions being placed on businesses, trying to limit people's travels. You know, even grocery stores had certain hours and employees had to mask up. Uh, I, I think we've come a long way. And, you know, some people unhappy with some of those restrictions, you know, as it pertained to businesses, as it pertained to masking. Um, but you always heard health officials say, we're following the science. And I, and I think you saw that in that, you know, you remember at first there was the universal mask mandate, like even when you're outside, we want you to have your mask on. But we saw those change as the pandemic went along, like it, it, then it became an indoor only mask mandate. And we know that's because in areas with poor ventilation indoors, COVID can spread a lot easier. Um, also, when I think back to this, I think about the strain on the on the healthcare system, the hospitals. Uh, there was a couple points during some winter surges where, you know, they were nearly overwhelmed. They bent, but they didn't break. Um, and then vaccines came along and, uh, you know, really helped us get in a place now where, you know, you just heard the public health officers say that this is very manageable. And Rebecca, what are you thinking about now, three years into this pandemic? Yeah, I, I think I also can't really believe that it's been three years. Um, it just feels like I don't know, time kind of stopped in a weird way. I think that it, it makes sense that we're moving out of a state of emergency. Um, you know, like some of the other folks said, I, I do think that we are moving into whatever endemic is going to look like with this virus. And endemic, by the way, is not a victory lap. Endemic just means that it is here at the levels that we are seeing are going to be the levels that maybe we see moving forward. Um, I think what's really striking about what Matt just said is that the state and the county have done a pretty good job of following the science. For example, okay, maybe we don't need to mask outdoors. Ventilation is really important. But we also have pretty clear science on not just how physical structures affect our health, but how social structures do. So the one thing that I worry about as we lift this state of emergency is how those big social structures are going to create risk. What's going to happen when people lose access to testing, when vaccines aren't as affordable anymore, when treatment isn't affordable, when you can't just go down and get a test um, a couple miles away for free. And I worry that those social and economic structures are the thing that's gonna start to drive more risk. And I mean, how does ending the COVID emergency factor into the issue you mentioned about communities that don't have access to testing um, and, and really marginalized communities being hardest hit by the pandemic? Yeah, I, that's a big question. That's books and books worth of questions. <laughs> but in short, what, what we see a lot with infectious disease globally, historically, is it tends to be the communities that are sort of have the least investment that have been kind of pushed to the sides historically. Those are the communities where viruses tend to settle. So we see that with HIV and a lot of folks who are doing work now in COVID came over from HIV because that was a big infectious disease. We see how even after a lot of people have kind of moved on, it's not a problem for me. It's still a problem for people who, um, who don't have enough money, who don't have paid sick leave, um, who are worried about what it might mean for their documentation status or a loved one's documentation status if they access public services. And so my concern is as the public health emergency gets lifted, it means money goes away. We were able to do a lot of really innovative things that we don't usually do around healthcare um, with those emergency funds. We were able to provide vaccines to adults for free. We could provide um, healthcare tests to adults for free. Treatment was relatively easy to access. And so as we lift that access, 
um, it's just going to make it more difficult for folks who are already more likely to get ill, more likely to suffer the worst effects. It's now going to be more difficult for them to get vaccinated, to get tested, to get treatment. I mean, and Rebecca, that in mind, what do you think COVID will look like in the long term? If I knew that. <laughs> only if you had a crystal ball. <laughs> if only, yeah, you know, I, I think the best thing that we can do with that is is look to the history of other um, pandemics. And I think, you know, a lot of people look to the, um, the big flu pandemic, um, but also I, I think we can look to the history of HIV too, like I mentioned before. And I think what we will see is many of us, especially those of us who have a doctor that we think is trustworthy, who um, feel comfortable, you know, walking into a CVS and saying, hey, I really need this thing. Those of us for whom a $10, $15 rapid test is not a major burden. Um, I think we'll be able to live a pretty normal life. Some of us will keep masking. I still wear a mask in the grocery store. Some of us won't. And maybe we'll get COVID and maybe we won't. Um, but I think for other people, those who don't have paid sick leave, those who can't, $10, $15 for an antigen test is a lot of money. I think that this will continue to be a major feature of life. Um, and I think one thing that we will probably see more of is the effects of long COVID too. We know about 10 to 30% of people who get COVID um, have long-term symptoms, more than three months, up to two years so far. And um, I, I wonder if we're going to see more long-term disability, in particular in communities that um, are more at risk of COVID and have less access to these um, prevention and treatment measures. I mean, Matt, we currently have low levels of COVID in the community, according to county data. What should we take away from that, though? It's kind of like a double-edged sword. I mean, you heard uh, Dr. Wooten in that story say that, you know, we're still averaging in the you know 200s or so for daily case counts. Uh, far beyond like the the tens of thousands, you know, 16,000 that we saw during some of those surges and those daily numbers. Um, but a lot of people aren't, you know, testing, you know, and to make it to make, I guess, let me back up a little bit. Uh, those official numbers come from lab PCR tests. And if you just sit there and think to yourself, when was the last time, you know, that you went out and got tested at a facility? A lot of people are testing at home now. And we know that those tests can be very reliable, um, but they don't make it into official case counts. So something that uh, the county officials and state officials and really nationally too, is this push toward wastewater. And Rebecca talked about it a little bit too. Um, that's kind of the future. And uh, we've seen the levels go up a little bit recently. There was just some new data that shows that that they're going back down. Um, but it, it's, it's definitely hard, it would seem, to get a grasp on how much COVID is out there. I mean, anecdotally, you hear friends that are testing positive, but that's just not making it into those counts. And Rebecca, how do you see wastewater epidemiology evolving to help in, in the way we prepare for surges in the virus and, and living with COVID? Yeah, I, I think wastewater epidemiology, you know, it was a thing that sort of existed before, um, but it has made huge strides in the last three years in a way that's really exciting. Um, I know that I personally, um, when I'm looking at COVID numbers and kind of gauging what I'm personally comfortable doing, um, I look at the wastewater because like Matt said, it's most people are using home tests and that's great that they're so accessible. So the wastewater is really the best and most accurate way we know to know what's happening. I think actually even here at, in San Diego, we've done some really cutting edge work. I was lucky enough to lead a project looking at how we could use wastewater monitoring in schools. And we found that you can um, detect at least one case on campus with 95% accuracy. Um, you can do that for a year um, for less than the cost of a single PCR um, per kid. 
Um, and I think that's amazing. And we're learning all of the things that you can um, track through wastewater. So not just COVID, but the flu and RSV and MPOX, um, certainly all the classic things that would show up in wastewater, like norovirus that small children are so good at spreading. And I think we're just going to see more really exciting advances in this and in our ability to sort of do genetic sequencing, to catch things early. Um, and I think in addition to keeping an eye on future surges of COVID, that's really important because COVID is in many ways a climate change issue. We are going to see more of these zoonotic diseases as our climates change, as people come into contact with new animal reservoirs, and there will be more of these um, viruses jumping from animals to human, and we're going to have to do a better job catching them early. That's an entire conversation and book all on its own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I do have um, some questions about the wastewater. One is you, you say that you can use that data to really set your own personal risk to assess that. So how exactly do you do that? So what I do um we, like I said, we're really lucky in San Diego that we have a lot of really cutting edge work happening here. Um, and there's honestly just a website, searchcovid.info. Um, I go to, I check it a lot of days. <laughs> and it tells you how much COVID is in the wastewater. It tells you what um, the current variants are. And I kind of look at that and I say, you know, I really want to go out on a date with my husband tonight. Should we eat inside or, um, or should we eat outside? Um, I look at it and I say, ooh, it looks like numbers are really climbing. I'm going to be um, extra annoying to my family when they come over for a birthday party and ask them to take an antigen test. And so I, I just use that to have a sense of trends and to know how many um, mitigation measures I want to put in place so I can go about living my normal life, but, you know, try my best not to get this virus. But how current are those numbers? By the time you look at those numbers online, is it a snapshot of what it looked like last week? Or is it what it is today? Oh, yeah. So that's one of the things that's really exciting about um, wastewater. <laughs> if you can get excited about wastewater. Um, it's actually a leading indicator. So it's really current. Um, I think, you know, I would have to check um, what the turnaround is. But I want to say it's within one to two days of when samples are pulled from the treatment facility that data makes it um, up onto that search website. And one of the things that's really interesting about wastewater is the virus will actually show up in your stool, often before it will show up in your nose. And so you can actually see um, what is coming by looking at the wastewater data before it even starts to show up in the case rates. So it's, it's really current. It's sometimes even a leading indicator. Um, and it's probably the best tool we have right now for knowing what's happening. Very interesting. Also, Rebecca, in Matt's story, we heard Dr. Eric Topol say, we should be investing in better vaccines. Uh, what are you hopeful for in terms of COVID treatment options? Yeah, so I am, I am not a vaccinologist. I am not a basic scientist. Um, but one thing I am really hopeful for is, you know, you'll hear people say, well, I'm vaccinated and it's just a flu. It's just a cold. I to me personally, I don't think we're to a place where it's just a flu or just the cold yet. Like I said, I, I have concerns about long COVID. Um, I have concerns about sort of this whole body uh, number <laughs> that the virus does on you. But I'm really hopeful that as we sort of get to a place with yearly updates with vaccines, with the possibility of a nasal vaccine like Dr. Topol talks about, 
um, with better, more tailored treatments, we can get to a place where it's just a cold or just a flu, and it's not that big a deal. But again, I have to emphasize for people who have access to those things, because especially with the state of emergency being lifted, there will be people who don't have access. And so my biggest worry is that we move into a place where for 70% of the county it's just a flu and 30% of the people it's a potentially debilitating um, disease. And I think the trickiest part of this is uh, it's difficult to assess your risk when you don't know what the outcome of long COVID could be. Yeah, and there's a lot of work happening on that. I just came back from Croy, which is sort of the premier virus <laughs> conference, um, and a lot of people are working to figure this out, working to figure out who is it that's more affected, who is it that's less affected, um, do we have biomarkers for it, can you do a blood test and figure it out, um, what are the different ways that it can look. One thing that's sort of emerging um, that I think is really interesting is it appears that women in their late middle age seem to be more likely to experience long COVID. I have no idea why, but as an almost 40 year old woman, it makes me a lot less interested <laughs> in getting COVID. Right. Um, and I, I think we'll see a lot of progress there too, because I know a lot of smart people are really working on it. Um, but again, we're not quite there yet. You know, Matt, as KPBS's health reporter, you'll continue to cover COVID. What will you be keeping an eye on in the coming months? I think one thing, and uh, you guys were just talking about it, is this uh, idea of long COVID. You know, we're seeing people impacted by this, and it really impacts people in different ways. You know, for some people, it's this long-term fatigue, but then you're also seeing stories about people being at higher risk for things like diabetes or, or maybe even like brain damage. Um, so, you know, we, we've only had this for about three years. So, you know, a lot of those long studies are, are, are hopefully still going on, probably still happening. Um, there's also this uh, question of where did the virus originate from? It's kind of been in the news this week. Um, you know, did it come from an animal? Did it come from a, a lab? You know, it, it sounds like the federal government says that there's no consensus on that yet. I think that's something that we want to pay attention to. Um, and sort of as Dr. Topol uh, and Rebecca were alluding to, you know, can we keep up with this virus? Um, you know, it sounds like it could go endemic in the way that flu is. Uh, you know, it sounds like we're not really there yet. But, you know, with these emergencies going away, the federal emergency going away, um, we've seen funding for COVID uh, be cut back, Congress not not providing as much as they were before. Um, and, and so we've seen things like like some treatments for COVID that aren't keeping up uh, with the latest versions of this virus. Um, and so are we going to keep being able to fund projects that make treatments that, that actually work for this? And Rebecca, any final thoughts for you? No, you know, I, I think one thing that has been really interesting um, about the sort of state of emergency, and I agree three years is a long time for emergency. Uh, maybe that's not quite where we need to be anymore, but it did allow us to be really innovative and really thoughtful and be really mindful about um, health equity outcomes. And I think in San Diego in particular, we've done a really great job of that. Um, so I, my hope is just as we continue to move forward into whatever endemic looks like, that we are still able to find mechanisms to keep that equity response at the core. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman and Rebecca Fielding Miller, assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego, in the Herbert Wertheim School of Public Health and the Division of Infectious Disease and Global Public Health. Thank you both very much for your uh, time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jade.
Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Over the weekend, the San Diego Padres announced an 11-year, $350 million contract extension with all-star third baseman Manny Machado. So what does this mean for the team and its World Series quest? Bryce Miller, a sports columnist with the San Diego Union-Tribune, talked about this with Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken. Here's their conversation. Over the weekend, the San Diego Padres announced an 11-year, $350 million contract extension with all-star third baseman Manny Machado. So what does this mean for the team and its World Series quest? Here to tell us more is Bryce Miller, sports columnist with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Bryce, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thanks, Andrew. So what are the details here, and why is this deal significant for the Padres? Well, you laid out the nuts and bolts, essentially. It's an 11-year extension on top of the current deal that was in place. The total amount of money related to the extension is $350 million. So it's big and it's significant in and of itself. It it becomes, essentially, when you put those two contracts together, um, it's a half a billion dollar commitment to Manny Machado over 15 years. It's one of the biggest contracts in, in baseball history. The only three contracts that are bigger currently, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Aaron Judge. So when you're starting to talk about somebody in that, in a conversation with those types of players, that that's significant on its own level. Unlike the past contract that had an opt-out option for Manny Machado next year that got the ball rolling on all this, he had said, and it makes a lot of sense that he would explore free agency, but didn't necessarily mean he would leave. They offered a deadline to the Padres. Uh, which the Padres did not meet. And Kevin Acey, a colleague of mine at the Union Tribune, reported at that point the Padres had made just one offer. So in that moment, you, you wondered, is this going to be an all-season-long distraction? Are they going to get this done? Are they trying to diplomatically move on from Manny Machado and chase down a longer-term deal with Juan Soto, maybe go after Shohei Otani a year from now? Uh, but then very quickly, Peter Seidler, who talked to the media here in Peoria, Arizona, at the Padres Spring Training Complex, called Machado his top priority. And he delivered on that just a few days later um, when this deal came together. But it's also significant because it eliminates the distraction of that being a question all season long for a team that's in this window to contend with a lot of really talented players. It probably you know, raises the confidence level in that clubhouse. It means that, you know, stars like Fernando Tatis Jr., Xander Bogarts, and Machado will be together for 11 years. They've finalized deals for pitchers Joe Musgrove for five more years, you Darvish for six more years. So there's a huge core that now that you've mopped up uh, the Machado contract situation uh, that are going to be together for a long time. So on both those levels, it's it's significant. And why was Machado the Padres' top priority, as you mentioned? What does he bring to the team? Well, in the, uh, you'd have to ask Peter Seidler why he would have said that. But if you ask me, he's one of the most well-rounded 
overall talented players in the game. Offensively and defensively, he's elite. He was the number two vote getter in the NL MVP race a year ago. Uh, he's a Pascal Glove winner, but that rare combination of his ability to produce offensively, to be an elite defender, and he plays every day. He hasn't been on the injured list since 2015, which is remarkable. So you know you're getting him and you're getting that production basically almost every day, all season long. All those things kind of stirred together why he's a player worth investing in for a lot of reasons. And so longtime Padre fans probably are still accustomed to star players signing with other teams rather than staying in San Diego, though that trend has shifted in recent years. What does this deal tell us about Manny Machado and what he was looking for? I think it probably tells us a lot of things. It tells you he likes San Diego. He and his wife are comfortable here. They built a house on, on Coronado. This has grown into his team. He's kind of the center of this clubhouse in so many ways, even with all that other talent around him. But I think the most important thing it tells you is that he thinks they can win here. He thinks they can win a World Series here. That deal essentially locks him down for life. He he will spend his entire career, the rest of his career, as a San Diego Padre. And there's no way he would do that, no matter the money, no matter how much he likes San Diego weather, unless he really believed they could win. He's a guy that's critical to him. And I think this deal tells you that he thinks it'll happen here. And in your most recent column, you write that the way we judge these deals often is a little overly simplistic. You write, it's all or nothing, black or white, good or bad, fearless genius or reckless nonsense. But ultimately, you say this deal lives somewhere in between. Why is that? Well, I think this contract, you should look at it in kind of layers. There's the short term, there's the medium term, and there's the long term. The short term is a no-brainer. I mean, they're in a window to contend. He's playing probably as well as he, he has in his career at age 30 and almost 31. But in this window to contend, they may only have Juan Soto for one more season before he opts for free agency or at least explores that route. So in the short term, you want Manny Machado here a year from now because of all the talent they've assembled. That window to really chase a World Series potentially is this year and next. And the more these long-term deals line up, it, you know, that opens that window and extends it a bit. Long-term, you know, will he be playing the left side of the infield when he's 40? I, I doubt it. Probably not. But just look at Nelson Cruz, the designated hitter uh, for the Padres, really talented offensive player. You know, he's in his 40s and he, he's going to play a lot for the Padres this season. So you could envision a long-term scenario where Manny Machado is a designated hitter because of his ability to hit a baseball. And really, if they win a World Series or two across those 11 seasons, that deal will have been worth it, no matter the financial you know, expenditures along the way, just because this city has never experienced a World Series championship. And given all that you just mentioned, I mean, what does this deal tell you about Padres' ownership and their vision for the franchise? It's really beyond unprecedented. We went way past uh, unprecedented in San Diego. That that uh, hurdle is far in the rearview mirror. But what it's really done is shock baseball. They have become an everyday story at spring training. I've seen more national media, more media period in the early days of spring training, but they're the talk of baseball. Just every day, it seems like people sit there and say, what will the Padres do next? Which has never happened in franchise history. You've never had Commissioner Rob Manfred talking and Rockies owner Dick Monford talking about 
Is this sustainable? Is it bad for the game? Is it wise? Why are people like that talking about the Padres? Because what they're doing has never happened before. Um, there's a version of that going on right now with the Mets and owner Steve Cohen. He's the richest owner in baseball pretty easily. But that's a New York market with the richest owner in baseball. It's not as surprising there as it is in San Diego, where although it's the eighth largest city in the country, it's somewhere around the 27th largest media market. For some reason, they're still you know, hitting with the big clubs, the ones that the big spenders traditionally, the Dodgers, the Yankees, teams like that, Red Sox to a degree in their history. And for that reason, it's, it's completely unprecedented. And switching gears here, you know, Manny Machado also received some attention on Friday. He became the first player to commit a pitch clock violation. That's something brand new to the MLB this season. Right. Can you help us understand this new rule and its potential impact on players? Yeah, he laughed and said, I made history. And he really did. Um, it was the first uh, clock violation uh, with the new rule in, in, in the major leagues. Essentially, uh, there are 30 seconds between batters and there are 15 seconds between pitches and there are clocks that, that show those times. Um, I guess I should say the 15 seconds between pitches uh, is with the base is empty. If there are runners on it, it, it goes, it extends a little bit to 20 seconds. Um, but, and once, once a pitcher begins the delivery, that clock resets. But what I don't think people anticipated on the hitting side of that conversation, you have to be, the, the phraseology there is alert for the pitcher in the batter's box. You can't be outside the batter's box or in the box and looking down and still doing a bunch of things. You need to be ready to hit the baseball with eight seconds left on the clock. So Machado violated that. And what happens is it's an automatic strike. So he started that, that count 0-1 before he ever saw baseball. And, uh, a game ended because of that rule, uh, in spring training, which I don't think anybody anticipated the, the odds of that happening, but it was a third strike led to a strikeout. I think it was Braves Red Sox, but it ended the game. Can you imagine what that would look and feel like if it's late in the season, people are chasing playoff spots. So right now it's kind of funny, Manny had fun with it, still ended that at bat with a hit, but it, it's a rule that as the season goes along. It, it could play a, it could play a factor in in the outcome of games, and that's probably more than people anticipated. And do you have any idea from talking with players or anything if this rule helps the pitcher or batter more, or are they just kind of figuring it out at this point? I think they're figuring it out on both sides. I think the more surprising part is hitters in terms of the examples we just talked about. Really, the biggest impact uh, they've they've tried this in the minor leagues, clock violations. And it trimmed the, the time on games significantly. I think it was 25 minutes or so. I think we saw that early in spring training here the first couple of days. Game times were more in the range of two and a half hours rather than three hours plus. And I think that is exactly the goal of that rule. Most of the criticism from especially younger fans or, or younger people are on the fence about whether to be a baseball fan is that games just take too long. And finally, you know, as we speak, you're in Arizona with the team. The Padres just finished up playing their fourth spring training game. What are your observations about the team so far? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's so early. You know, Manny Machado, uh, I think he was maybe four for his first five, something like that. Um, Juan Soto had a huge day um, the other day. Some of the big stars uh, produced early. The part that's... Uh, Hard to figure right now, especially early in spring training, 
is what do pitching staffs and rotations look like. They're very careful with arms early. Uh, starters in these games might go two innings. Some only go one inning. They like to see a lot of different pitchers in situations who would be on the fence in terms of whether they could contribute, make the roster. Uh, same thing with a lot of position players. There's so much mixing and matching that goes on. But maybe the one overarching thing, uh, I talked to Matt Carpenter, uh, you know, an all-star who played for the Cardinals. Uh, he's a veteran guy who's won a lot of games, played on the biggest stages. And he said, I've been in all-star games, but walking in this clubhouse feels like an all-star game clubhouse. Even guys who've seen it all are impressed by what it looks like in that clubhouse in terms of the amount of talent. So that's a part of why, how the spring training feels different. And it's, uh, it's really the first and second and third impression you have when, you, when you're around the Padres at this point. That was San Diego Union-Tribune sports columnist Bryce Miller speaking with Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken. The Padres are in spring training this week, and right now they are playing the San Francisco Giants. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. San Diego is a beer town. There are more than 150 independent craft breweries here, according to the Brewers Guild. What has long been missing from the craft brewing industry, however, is better representation of brewers from ethnically diverse backgrounds. San Diego native and rapper Kemet Aki is trying to change that one beer at a time. A brewer at Second Chance Beer Company, he hopes his work in the industry will help bring about a more inclusive brewing scene. I spoke with Kemet Aki recently about beer and music. Here's our conversation. So Kemet, what got you into brewing in the first place? Were you a big beer guy before becoming a brewer? Definitely. I was always a big beer guy, just not so much in the education of beer. Just a big beer drinker (laughs) uh, was my interest for the most part. I got into the actual art of it by getting hired at Second Chance Brewery and um, started to learn more about the processing and just the different types of styles and the art behind the, the craft. And you got into brewing after spending some time in the Army. Uh, Did your global travel spark any kind of interest or insight into brewing for you? Uh, Well, definitely sparked interest that way was um, some traveling overseas. I was in Ireland, spent some time in there, and I tried some Guinness on tap. That was the first time I tried it on tap, and it was delicious. Changed my whole perspective of drinking Guinness beer. I was in Amsterdam and went to the Heineken brewery there. That was awesome. I got to bottle my own Heineken. I guess that would be the the spark, actually, to to what really got things going. So what is it about brewing that you like the most? I mean, is it the smell of the ingredients or is it that first sip of a finished batch? 
it's the first sip of a finished batch. You know, it's really just coming from the idea of just thinking of the beer, thinking of the whatever style that you're going to be creating, thinking of the can, thinking of the art, thinking of everything, the ingredients. So coming from just the idea of the beer to the final canned product and tasting that that finishing product is my immediate favorite part of it. So do you think you could pick out one style of beer as your favorite or is that kind of like picking out your favorite child? (laughs) Well, I don't have any children yet, so I would think that picking my favorite beer would be more like picking my favorite shoes. (laughs) But um, I think my favorite beer is West Coast IPA style. Listen, if I had to pick through my favorite pair of shoes, I don't know that I could do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's I, that's what I'm seeing. Like, that's the closest I could relate it to. I'm sure that's a very difficult choice. It's difficult. It's difficult. But but still, I'm impressed. West Coast. Okay, a lot of people can find certain kinds of beer to be a little uh, inaccessible or even intimidating. So, how do you encourage people to explore what's out there? Well, I try to encourage them to start light, you know, go with a light style choice. You know, we have lagers in the craft beer industry and those are easier, more approachable drinkers. And, you know, I think just easing in (laughs) instead of diving in as opposed to swimming, then, uh, you know, you might have a better experience. (laughs) You've developed your own beer. It's a hoppy Kolsch called All I Want, and it was designed specifically for Black History Month. Talk a little bit about this creation. The All I Want Coach was created mainly to just educate and put awareness in the community about craft beer. And that's the whole reason I wanted to make a beer was just to, you know, educate more people on it, right? So I spoke to the owners at Second Chance about, you know, my my brand, uh, my friends are rappers, and um, that I was trying to do something different with my brand and separate myself from, you know, as just an apparel company. And uh, they were interested and we collaborated with Chula Vista Brewery that first year, did release party there, and it was great turnout. And, you know, we brought a lot of local artists to the uh, release party and, um, you know, brought some new new music to the community. And so tell me a little bit more, like, where does the name All I Want come from? Um, All I Want came from just me thinking of like a jingle or, you know, something for the beer. And what I came up with was All I Want is a Second Chance. And it really just came naturally with me being at Second Chance. And so All I Want is a Second Chance beer. And so uh, that's pretty much what sparked the idea behind that. Ah, ingenious. So black and brown brewers are are often underrepresented in this industry. Why do you think that is? For me, I just think it's based off of the education. They're not really interested in things that they don't really know about, as well as, um, you know, the way that it is perceived to them and marketed even, because you don't see a lot of black and brown people in the industries, obviously, and you don't see so much of it being marketed to them um, in a way that they feel that it's organic and something that they can relate to. So I feel like, you know, that's something that I'm doing with All I Want is bringing an authentic feel to the craft beer industry or not even just the feel, just bringing authenticity from our community and bringing our community as a whole. I mean, so do you hope that your work and involvement in the craft brewing scene will inspire others to get involved? Definitely. I hope that it can inspire many people to come into the craft beer industry and find different types of roles in the craft beer industry and um, start to bring more people of color and make a change. 
And this beer is also a, a collaboration with your brand, All My Friends Are Rappers, which really boosts the local hip hop scene. Can you talk about why beer and music are such a perfect combination for you? Beer and music is such a perfect combination to me because I think a beer is like giving a gift to a friend or to a person or like a peace offering, you know, if you if you drink beer, you know, if you don't drink alcohol, of course, then, you know, we'll have to get you a, a fresh bottle of water. But I definitely think that, you know, just beers are cool to give to a friend and, you know, talk about your day, listen to music or just hang out with. Get back up on his feet. Quick as lightning, then go hiking. Can't pressure, homie. I've been dope forever. These fools been sounding like a broken record. Before I broke their records And when you look up in the sky You see me flying by Just make a wish We've been talking about beer and hip-hop, you know, also known as beer and bars, right? Uh, here. So, you know, I'm curious, can you give me your top three local beers and your top three local rappers? Okay, I'll say my top three local rappers be not in this order would be Kelly the Dreamer. Paint the scene pristine cause I've seen a lot. I reach for ink and pads and I dream my plaque with acting like you on. Never seen you pop. We Ed O'Smith. I'm feeling like the king of rock. When one succeed the knees and we scheme and drop. Proceed to stack the cheese. See no reason not to feed the greed. The fact that the city had just a bonus. But Kelly King James been the coldest cause I withstand the rain. Brick scales. My hands, Kelly Shark, Kim flying knee in the gate. Who wanna challenge, huh? Gary Payne in the scene. They say I'm on the present. Rappers used to be ill, but now they convalescent. Soft touch on the drums. Your style is not impressive. I come into you and can show you how to finesse. The first lesson is study step, have a second guessing. And Marty McFly. You ain't wrong or right. This is life. This is yin and yang. This is dark and light. So I spark hell if it's you and me, was night and day. Hiding pain, finding ways to slide away. Some were plays, some was just to get away. Recognize we wasn't meant to stay in the same room with different mental states. Both tried to manipulate. And top three beers, I would go with All I Want. I would go with 394 from L. Smith. And I'd go with the Friar Pale L from Ballast Point. I know that was difficult. It was actually very difficult. <laughs> hey, it's picking your favorite pair of shoes. <laughs> yep, for sure. Right. Yeah, that, that would be my most accurate. Hey, well, Kimmit, it's been great talking to you, and uh, best of luck in your endeavor. I've been speaking with Kimmit Aki, a brewer with Second Chance Beer Company, and again, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> 